It's dawn on June 21st, 1720, in Trapassi Bay, a little fishing village in Newfoundland, located today in Canada's most eastern province. In the peaceful harbour are nearly 200 merchant and fishing vessels. Bart Roberts stands on the deck of his ship, the Fortune. He surveys the harbour, eyeing up the boats through his spyglass with a toothy grin and a faint chuckle. There is a large galley in the harbour, and Roberts wants it. Since leaving the Caribbean to hunt in less well-defended waters, a trail of devastation has followed the pirates as they have made their way up the North American coast to Newfoundland. Roberts has raided merchant ships near Nova Scotia, Cape Breton, and Ferryland. He plunders all before him and cuts down anyone who resists. From each capture, he recruits sailors to join his crew, many against their will. After Walter Kennedy's betrayal, Roberts is determined to regrow his forces and recover his lost pile of loot. He's made a decent start. The fortune's hold is packed with treasure. But a pirate's work is never done. Trepassi is their next victim. Roberts begins his attack with dramatic flair. The black flag is raised and whips in the wind. Roberts orders his musicians to play. War drums and trumpets signal the coming onslaught. Ashore, there is a flurry of activity. Merchants and fishermen rush to the docks. They tremble at the sight of the pirates as the war music echoes over the water, along with the pirates chanting. The crew of the Bitterfoot, Tepati's sole guardship, flee the vessel, leaving the harbor entirely defenseless. Roberts begins his attack, first targeting the anchored ships. It's reported that Roberts burns and sinks dozens of merchant ships and destroys the fisheries and stages of the poor planters without remorse or compunction. 22 ships are destroyed and nearly 150 fishing boats are seized and looted. Roberts is giddy with power and unconcerned at the misfortunes his men impose on the fishing village, smiling at his mischief that brings him and his crew no advantage. The village quickly surrenders to the pirates. They want to give them whatever they want, hoping these sea devils will spare their lives. But it seems that what they want is to lay waste to anything and everything. Some report the pirates are like madmen that cast firebrands, arrows and death and say, are we not in sport? After terrorizing the village, Roberts seizes his prize, the galley. Commandeering the vessel, he loads it with the spoils and adds 16 guns. Roberts abandons his battered sloop, the Fortune, and departs Trapassi Bay, leaving the smoldering harbor behind him strewn with floating bodies 
and burning hulls. With his firepower increased, Roberts sails on, stepping up his raids, looking for still greater prizes. While most pirates in this era want to go unnoticed, content to quietly operate in the shadows, Bart Roberts is a man on a mission, a pirate commodore, well on his way to building a great pirate fleet. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. Other pirates of the Golden Age barely hold a candle to the savagery, or the industry, of Black Bart Roberts. The number of ships he is capturing, raiding, and destroying is giving him a tally of scores that no other pirate at this time can match. Instrumental to the pirate captain's success is knowing the right places to pillage. The attack on Trepassi is as much a strategic success for the pirates as it is a disaster for the port. Maximum impact, minimal risk. Dr. James Rankin is a historian and an authority on pirates. It was an unusual choice in that there had been obviously attacks in that area. Often during times of war, it was a hotspot for maritime violence because it lay between the French territory in Canada and the English in New England. Both of them obviously fished the Newfoundland banks, and during war, there would be privateers out seizing ships quite often. So it wasn't unknown for someone to go to that region looking for ships to plunder, but it wasn't necessarily a place where pirates had been particularly active before Roberts first arrives there in 1720. People are extremely concerned because Roberts' attack was unexpected, and it was also extremely destructive. I think that is the thing that probably made this the most concerning, was that the vast majority of the ships, you know, 22 in all, if we had sort of to go by the official reports, were destroyed. Didn't need to destroy them, but they did anyway. 
And for some of these communities, a community like Trapassi, which you know depends on the fisheries and on the commercial flow of goods and services moving through that region, this is a disastrous development. Having left Trapassi, Roberts continues cruising off Newfoundland, looking for new prizes. These waters are proving incredibly lucrative for him. The area is rich with defenseless fishing and whaling ships, and the British naval presence is virtually non-existent, a weakness his crew are happy to exploit. Roberts soon adds 10 more merchant vessels to his tally. Wherever he goes, destruction follows. While Roberts is taking prizes great and small, like all successful pirates, he's in the market for a mighty ship of force to add to his ranks, a new flagship. He knows his success as a pirate is entirely down to how much muscle he can muster. He needs greater numbers and greater firepower. And it just so happens that a worthy vessel has presented itself. A 26-gun French merchant ship is in view. The vessel outguns him twice over, but Roberts is confident he can take the merchantman regardless. And he's right. The attack is swift and easy as the vessel quickly falls into his hands. One can imagine Roberts' elation. Just months ago, he was left with nothing. Just an empty craft and a meager crew when his quartermaster, Walter Kennedy, betrayed him and took off with his fleet and a great store of Portuguese treasure. But this pirate captain is on course for a comeback. Now, Roberts must decide what to do with his French captives. In what appears to be a rare act of kindness, he allows his most recent victims to sail away, giving them one of his lesser prize ships in return for their own vessel. While these French seamen are lucky to get away, most others are not. Roberts christens his new ship the Good Fortune and again sets out on a plundering jag. He takes several more prizes, a ship called the Richard, the Willing Mind, the Expectation, and finally in July 1720, a merchant ship called the Samuel, reportedly rich with goods. Roberts torments the passengers by any means necessary to make them surrender their wealth. Chronicler Charles Johnson tells us, several passengers were used very roughly in order to make them give up their money. The pirates hold blades to their victims' necks as they tear through people's pockets and torture passengers with physical and psychological pain. Anyone who attempts to resist is made a clear example of. They are thrashed about and beaten to a bloody pulp. Johnson describes them more like fiends than men. A description supported by witnesses quoted in the Boston newsletter. With madness and rage, the pirates tore up the hatches and entered the hold like a parcel of furies, and with axes and cutlasses, cut and broke open all the trunk boxes, cases, and bales. There was nothing heard among the pirates all the while but cursing, swearing, damning, and blaspheming to greatest degree imaginable. Anything they can't use, they throw overboard. Nothing will go untouched. And Roberts makes sure that every one of 100 crewmen gets involved. 
It seems the wanton destruction and brutality is not only sending a message to the victims, but to any reluctant participants within his ranks. His crew are forced to ride or die with him. He knows the more crimes they all commit, the stronger their bond. Whether they like it or not, their loyalty to him is increased. By the nature of their crimes, they cannot turn away from this life now. If caught, they'll hang, and if they desert, according to the pirate articles, they will be marooned or shot. In for a penny, in for a pound. I do think that the increasing destructiveness of a lot of these attacks reflects the changing conditions in which Robert's crew is operating. As the criminalization or the possibility of being held liable for pirate attacks becomes much you know, harsher, much more stark for particularly commanders like Roberts, there's very little incentive to try to curry favor, for instance, by leaving ships you know, more intact or not engaging in these kind of destructive acts. Because by this point, you know, it's no longer the time of kid where maybe if you testify, you might be able to pull it off. You might still be able to do that, but the chances are growing slender that you will come away from time on a pirate ship unscathed. So they have to somehow incentivize, or at the very least, initiate men into the crew. One thing that you can do is encourage people to commit crimes that will push them further into, you know, across that line. And then once someone has taken something from a ship, they've been witnessed doing that, then they have to say, well, the chances that I'm going to be convicted are growing. And that means increasingly my survival is aligned with sticking with Roberts, with sticking with this pirate crew and hoping that we don't get caught. Having raided the Samuel, Roberts informs the captain that his men are pirates to the end and won't be taken alive. They will accept no act of grace, neither would they go to Hope Point to be hanged up a sun drying, as Kidd's and Bradish's company were. But that if they should ever be overpowered, they would set fire to the powder with a pistol and go all merrily to hell together. It's a grand statement, part of Roberts's growing pirate manifesto. But is this speech just another one of Charles Johnson's literary inventions? For once, I can't knock Johnson for this one because he is pulling this almost verbatim from a Boston newsletter report of the attack, August 22nd, 1720. Do we credit Roberts with saying something like this? I think it's pretty likely that this was said. I mean, we know that lots of crews or pirates in the years to come said this. Only, as far as I know, there's only two incidents of people actually pulling it off. But I think for Roberts himself, and I think this is something that crystallizes in the post-amnesty period, Roberts knows that his name is in the newspapers. He has come close a couple of times already to being captured and undoubtedly tried and hung. So for Roberts, this can only really end in a couple of ways. None of those endings involve him surrendering and surviving. Following the attack on the Samuel, Roberts continues to raid and treat other captains barbarously for weeks. The crew continues to grow as more sailors are pressed into joining the pirates' ranks. With the rising numbers, it's more effort for Roberts to manage the drunken rabble and also keep an eye out for anyone who might want to mutiny or abscond. 
Nevertheless, he is determined to keep expanding. In total, Roberts has raided and destroyed over 40 ships around Newfoundland. He also has pillaged nearly 100 smaller craft. With so much destruction, Roberts knows he can't remain in the area much longer. Warships will soon be looking for them, ready to send them to the ocean floor. The best course of action is to sail south. It's August 1720, and Roberts is off Charlestown, South Carolina, where Blackbeard famously held the port hostage back in 1718. En route to the West Indies, Roberts captures and raids another small ship, taking their water casks. But he's not alone. Sailing in consort with him once again is the Sea King, captained by the French pirate captain Montigny-la-Palisse. In February, La Palisse ran for the hills when Roberts was trapped by privateers. For a man preoccupied with loyalty and revenge, it might come as a surprise Roberts doesn't hold a grudge against La Palisse. On the contrary, he is welcomed back into the growing fleet. We don't have a lot of information about what exactly transpired between Roberts and De Palisse. You know, my sense of it is that when they chance upon each other again, Roberts really has a choice. He could pursue vengeance if he felt that he'd been wrong. I think it's also possible that he was willing to once again forge an alliance of convenience. Unlike Kennedy, De Police didn't take anything from Roberts. De Police was an ally, but not necessarily under Roberts' command. So, you know, he may have perceived this as outside of the compact to which he held his own sailors accountable. It's a bright day in October 1720, and the warm Caribbean air blows over the sailing pirates. Roberts leaves and takes the good fortune and sea king to the British colony of St. Christopher, today known as St. Kitts, a wealthy sugar-exporting island. The pirates can see the bright sandy beaches, lush green landscape, and the cloud-shrouded volcano of Mount Lyamiga. Entering the harbor of Basseterre, once again, Roberts has his musicians play their war anthem. But this time, the militant intimidation doesn't work. Roberts is met with resistance. The governor refuses them entrance to the harbor. Needless to say, Bart Roberts is not a man to take rejection very well. Enraged, he makes an example of Basseterre. Ashore, locals pay no attention to the two ships in the harbor. They're busy going about their day. In the dock, sugar is being loaded into merchant ships. The town's market is abuzz as men and women purchase fruits and vegetables. But hearing the sound of music, curious heads turn towards the harbor when all hell breaks loose. The pirates fire on the town. Black smoke engulfs the streets as relentless cannon fire pummels Bastaire. People scatter, screaming and frantic in the confusion. A fleeing woman falls and cracks her head on the cobbles. An older man helps her to her feet. They escape just in time. 
A moment later, the cannonball explodes where she had lain. A cloud of white smoke hangs around the good fortune and the Sea King in the harbor as the cannon fire continues without mercy. With the town crippled by chaos and destruction, Roberts turns his attention to the anchored merchant ships. He blasts them too, setting them ablaze. The message is clear. Deny Bartholomew Roberts at your peril. The Good Fortune and the Sea King exit the harbor, still playing their war anthem as the town and ships burn. So it seems to have been a Robert's signature move by the time he gets to St. Kitts, which is obviously the next really iconic signature encounter between Roberts and British merchants. I think playing music as they sail into this harbor kind of reveals, I think, a bit of a theatrical streak in Robert's pirating style, if we can call it that. I don't think he would be the last to sort of develop a kind of a mythos or a, a style that would become famous. And the fact that it was noted both at Trapassi and at Basseterre, the capital at St. Kitts, suggests that it was at least something that they found unusual. So what is Roberts doing here? I think we might argue if we take the description of war drums, literally, that he is imitating or at least invoking the sort of military conventions of the time of a sort of marching into battle. It says to the people in the harbor when you hear this cacophony that Roberts is not here to conduct business. Leaving Basseterre, Roberts and company next make port on the French island of Saint-Barthélemy. Unlike on St. Christopher, the governor of Saint-Barthélemy seems to welcome Roberts and his crew of 200-plus pirates. Perhaps their reputation precedes them. It is a time of celebration on the island, at least for the pirates. Johnson tells us that Roberts is met with much handsomer treatment. The governor supplies the pirates with refreshments and the women from so good an example to endeavor to outvie each other in dress and behavior to attract the good graces of such generous lovers that paid well for their favors. This experience is stark compared to the British reception on St. Christopher. So why do we think this French port welcomes Roberts so willingly? Johnson, who's writing for an English audience, right? He's publishing this in London and he knows that this is gonna be read by the English public. One thing he could be fairly sure of is if you take a dunk on the French, people are going to appreciate that. I mean, it's important to note that St. Bartholomew's is, is a French colony in the Caribbean. We have that juxtaposition, which I think is key, right? It's the literary device showing Roberts committing these terrible crimes and then sailing a very short distance away to a French island where he's welcomed and fated is kind of playing up to the sort of, you know, the treachery of the French and the fact that they were willing to accept him and they gave him provisions and that the women in the port were sort of courting the pirates is all kind of feeds into a classic francophobic tradition within early 18th century English culture. And it's worth asking, were the pirates generous lovers? We have Johnson to thank for that particular construction and it's compelling and it's evocative but it may also be an other fabrication. I think it's easier to imagine a much tenser 
visit where perhaps the governor of St. Bartholomew's was like, I need to get these guys out of here. Let's just or give them what they want and send them on their way, right? I, I don't particularly want to end up like St. Kitts. So maybe we'll just do a deal with these guys and make nice in the meantime. So had he sailed into Martinique, it seemed very unlikely that Roberts would have received the things that he needed. But St. Bartholomew's was smaller, possibly more vulnerable, possibly more intimidated by Robert's conduct in recent days. And if your options are give this guy some food, some water, some you know supplies that he needs and move him on or risk having numerous ships burnt in the harbor, it's not implausible to think that the French maybe just took the path of least resistance. It seems this period is not just used to indulge in drink and women, but also to engage in a rebrand. Roberts has decided to give himself a new title. A local newspaper on St. Christopher reports that Captain Roberts, who is the most desperate pirate of all who range these seas, now calls himself Admiral of the Leeward Isles. No doubt buoyed by the string of success, it seems Roberts' confidence is skyrocketing. So after a few weeks, with renewed strength, Roberts departs Barthélemy. It's late October, sailing off Dominica, and Roberts is a force to be reckoned with. He has captured a 22-gun brig, a sloop which he now uses as a storeship, and a mighty 42-gun merchant vessel, which Roberts makes his new flagship and renames the Royal Fortune. Few pirates gain this level of firepower. Blackbeard's Queen Anne's Revenge and Henry Avery's The Fancy are the only pirate ships comparable to the Royal Fortune. A Danish seaman captured by Roberts gives a detailed report of this new ship. It is crewed by over 200 men, with 12 8-pounder guns, 4 12-pounders, 12 6-pounders, 6 8-pounders, and 8 4-pounders. In her main and foremast, seven guns, two and three pounders, and two swivels upon her mizzen. But how does Robert's ship compare to naval vessels at this time? I think in terms of firepower, we have to think relative to the kinds of vessels that Roberts is probably going to encounter. 42 guns and 200 men is a significant vessel. It's roughly equivalent to a fourth-rate ship of the line. Now you're thinking, our oh, fourth rate. Well, I mean, there's three rates above that. At this time, there's only a couple, there's nine fourth rates total and three third rates in that region. There are no first and second rates. Roberts being in command of a vessel that was roughly equivalent to a fourth rate ship of the line, in comparison to the vessels he's attacking, particularly fishing vessels in Newfoundland or merchant vessels in the Caribbean, he has order of magnitude more firepower than most of the vessels that he is bailing up. The other thing is all ships that were fitted out with lots of guns had to effectively navigate a compromise between firepower and speed. And Roberts, I think, you know, with the Royal Fortune, consistently tried to find the best compromise between those two, right? How much in terms of raw firepower you could fit on a ship was only worth doing if you could catch up with the vessels you needed to catch up with. So the Royal Fortune at this time would have been capable, you know, had it 
run into one of going toe-to-toe with most of the Royal Navy vessels at that time, at least in terms of sheer firepower. But it was also, right, I think this is key, also capable of potentially outmaneuvering and fleeing if that was necessary as well, because Roberts prized swiftness as much as firepower. But with every high comes a low. From Bermuda, Roberts lets the eastward winds take him to West Africa. Near the Cape Verde Islands, the pirates encounter another Portuguese convoy. Perhaps Roberts thinks this fleet would make up for some of the loss suffered by Walter Kennedy's betrayal. But his attempts to attack the fleet fail. In a rare miscalculation, Roberts leads his men off course, misjudging the air currents. But failing to intercept the Portuguese isn't the only problem. As a result, they drift out of reach of the coast of Africa. They are at risk of getting caught at sea without a port. He is forced to return to the West Indies to repair and restock. They leave entirely empty-handed. They went north and then wanted to kind of get back down to West Africa. And at least as far as we know the story goes, you know, they intended to just shave the edge of the Cape Verde Islands to get water and miscalculated and ended up basically too far west to be able to, you know, sail east, right? Because the prevailing wind just kept pushing them further. And they had no choice but to sail back to the Caribbean because once you kind of miss that window, once you're too far to the west of the Cape Verde Islands, you can't sail east because the wind is just not going to allow that tack. So it's a mistake. It's certainly an error that is going to reflect poorly on Roberts and contribute to perhaps, you know, a sense of vulnerability. This is a low point in crew morale and a very perilous moment for Robert's command and possibly his career in general. It's late December 1720. Roberts is back in the West Indies, making port into Samana Bay on Hispaniola. The pirate's lack of success is hitting hard, and Roberts can sense it. Morale aboard the Royal Fortune is plummeting. The last few endeavors have failed, and the crew is growing restless. Roberts knows that an uprising would ruin him if he doesn't manage his men. Whilst he may count on the loyalty of many crewmen, he's well aware that there are others who cannot be trusted. In fact, several men press-ganged into the pirate crew are now concocting a plan to escape. Leading the pack of rebels is Richard Luntley, Like every other member aboard, these men signed the pirate articles and swore an oath on the Bible to remain true to the cause. But in reality, many of Roberts' crew never wanted to be pirates. They are desperate to get away. They could stay quiet, but proving their innocence at a later date is far from easy. The men know if they do not overpower Roberts now and take the ship, they will no doubt be tried and hanged as pirates when caught. Down in the dark hold, a group of sweaty and dirty-faced men gather around the dim glow of a flickering oil lamp. Richard Luntley is outlining the plan to take the royal fortune. 
He has been a pirate since his capture by Howell Davis, Bart Roberts' predecessor. He's often pleaded for his freedom, but Luntley's skills as a carpenter have kept him trapped, as he is someone who can't be replaced easily. The discussion comes to a sudden stop. Above, they hear footsteps. The men shift nervously. Captain Roberts descends into the hold with his quartermaster and a third, grinning, weasel-faced pirate who has just ratted them out. He loudly declares that these men are plotting a mutiny. Luntley and his co-conspirators are dragged up on deck. A ship's council is formed to decide their fates. Luntley himself recounts all hands were called up to know what they should do with us. Some of them was for shooting us, others not. The articles are clear. No man is to talk of breaking up the company. To abandon the ship is punishable by death or marooning. The council decides that these men will be left to rot on a desolate island. Some days later, the would-be mutineers plead for mercy as the pirates leave them stranded on a deserted beach and sail back to the Royal Fortune in a longboat. Have their lives been spared? Or is marooning effectively a death sentence? That all depends on your luck. In a strange way, being marooned might help your chances of surviving in the sense that if you could weave the narrative of your marooning as, I was never a pirate, right? I was a prisoner on their ship and they just left me here to die because they didn't care about me. You might be able to sort of argue your way out of being convicted and hung for piracy. Marooning is a curious punishment because it implies that someone is going to potentially die without necessarily guaranteeing it. And I guess you can sail away from that island that you've marooned someone on with a certain sense that like you haven't necessarily killed them. <laughs> but it is also something that everyone else on that ship as you're sailing away from that island is going to have on their mind, right? That this could be me if I make the wrong move. For Richard Luntley and the other stranded men, it seems that luck is with them. Days later, they are rescued by a ship headed towards Britain. But fortune is a fickle thing. As it turns out, there is no salvation. Luntley and company are brought before the Admiralty Court in Scotland, where they are found guilty of acts of piracy and condemned to death. Before his death, Luntley says, and we that were forced men were compelled by the force of arms to do things that our conscience thought to be unlawful. Luntley's pleas fell on deaf ears, and he hangs on January 11th, 1721. It's February 1721. Roberts's crew are about to get a much-needed morale boost in the wake of Luntley's near-mutiny. Roberts knows that this is what he needs in order to keep his status as captain. The Royal Fortune and the Sea King are off St. Lucia when they capture several sloops and brutally beat the sailors. A report sent to London says of Roberts's violence, some they almost whipped to death, others had their ears cut off, others they fixed to the yardarms and fired at them as a mark. Perhaps the violence also serves as a timely reminder about who's in charge 
and how Roberts deals with those who defy him. Next in Roberts' bloodthirsty sights is a Dutch merchant ship. After a four-hour standoff and the loss of dozens of pirates, the Dutch vessel surrenders. Boarding, the pirates are further filled with violent rage. They slaughter every Dutchman aboard. It's a bloodbath. Roberts has put down a marker. His power is unchallenged, but his extreme tactics come at a price. Roberts knows that the word is out. Soon, every warship in the region will be hunting them. No matter the size of his fleet, his best course of action is to get far away from the Americas, sooner rather than later. Roberts plans to leave the Caribbean and sail across the Atlantic back to West Africa, returning to the same waters where his piratical journey began. But before he can do that, he wants to make good on his threat to the French on Martinique, the threat that flies above his mast, emblazoned on his Jolly Roger. The embroidered image of Roberts, standing on the skull of a Martinican. They will soon discover that it was no idle threat. Next time on Real Pirates. Bart Roberts is determined to exact his revenge on the governor of Martinique before he leaves the Caribbean for the last time. Meanwhile, the British Navy is taking steps to stop the disruptions to trade and end the savage brutality of Roberts and his crew. As the pirates make for the West African coast, Roberts' ruthless antics in the Americas have put a target on his back, as he'll soon find out. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boirot for Parcast. Produced by McAllister Bexon. Written by Luke Coons. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Sound design by Matthias Torres Sole. Mixmaster by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Mm -hmm.